Well, we're on our way to starting the book of Romans, taking a long on-ramp, which gives me extra time in order to, uh, to prepare for it. I am leaving today right after the service for our family beach vacation. And so as you are gathered tonight, hopefully by that time I will be in Kerala, North Carolina with sand between my toes. Thinking of you, praying for you, of course. <laughs> but I will be taking uh, the book of Romans with me and laboring and studying um, and spending some time with my family while, while we're there. But we're considering three vital messages that are the footers of biblical ministry. There's surely more rebar that you could add, but, but I would say if the church does not have at least these three, it will surely fail, it will fall. And they are biblical fidelity, biblical practice, and a biblical gospel. And we're, we're looking at each of those through, through the lens of church history. We're starting with Scripture because that's our authority. And then we're looking at an example from history that, that illustrates the truth. So, so in each message, we will look at a person from the past that exemplifies the, the doctrine, and in some cases, like today, even died for it. Then, in the end, we'll consider how to apply it to our own, our own lives. I think, frankly, that's happening through the whole, through the whole thing, as we're encouraged by their, by their faithfulness. So you get a Bible lesson, an illustration from a, a faithful person's life, and then a personal application to, to your own life. Now, like last week, I asked you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4 this morning. Last week, we looked at biblical fidelity illustrated by the life of John Wycliffe, and today we're going to look at the biblical practice illustrated by the life of, of John Rogers. Both of these men and the one that is coming on the biblical gospel um, is, is right in the heart of the, of the Reformation. And so if you haven't been around for a while, let me, let me just say this to you. The Reformation and these men attack the evils of Roman Catholicism. And the vast majority of Roman Catholics, American Roman Catholics, probably Roman Catholics around the world, don't have any idea about the doctrines that are the underpinnings of like the Catholic Mass that we'll see today. And so this is a direct frontal attack on the dogma of the Catholic Church, which is a false gospel, but not on individual unsuspecting Catholics that might be in the midst of that. A number of you have been saved out of that, which is why these men are so important and these men, I think you can see in the pages of 1 Timothy chapter 4, at least Timothy came first, but these men followed, and Paul is giving his young protege a instruction on a biblical ministry, and the theme is found in verse 6. Look, if you would, at verse 6. It says, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus constantly nourished on the, the faith and of sound doctrine which you have been following. So, so Paul's concern for Timothy is that he would be a good minister of Jesus Christ. And what follows are instructions about how to do that. Uh, this, this section provides an assessment for any biblical ministry uh, and therefore a measure for every church. This is not just good for Timberlake. This is inspired scripture. So this is what any faithful minister would, would measure up to or any church would, would be evaluated by. And Paul's explaining to Timothy how to be faithful or, or literally good, excellent at, at this task. And, and he does that by giving characteristics and commands to those who fulfill that charge. He says a faithful minister alerts the flock to error, i.e. what we're doing last week and, and even and even this week in verse 6, he says, constantly nourished on the, the words of faith and of sound doctrine, pointing out these things to the brethren, he says. So they alert the flock to error. They focus the flock on sound doctrine. That's the second part of that verse. A faithful minister turns the, uh, them away from secondary matters. Verse 7, have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for, for old women. Verse uh, seven through nine, a faithful minister disciplines himself unto godliness. He talks about this bodily exercise and exercising toward godliness. A faithful minister works hard in verse, verse 10 for, for, 
It is for this that we labor and, and strive because we fixed our hope on the living God. Uh, he proclaims God's message with, a, with authority, verse 11. Prescribe and teach these things. And he has a model to follow in, in verse 12. Uh, be a, show yourself an example to those who believe. And last week, he maintains biblical fidelity. That's verse 13. So, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture and exhortation and, and teaching. And, and here are two additions today in verses 14 and 15. A faithful minister does not neglect his calling, and he's given to biblical practice. If you would at verse 14. He says, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance and the laying on of hands by the presbytery or the elders. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. So Paul ha has said, if you want to be a good minister of Christ, your life should be followable and your doctrine faithful. I think that's probably a good way to summarize this whole section. And coming to the end of this list, he, he adds two more commands. And, and he just kind of doubles down on, on this idea. He doesn't give new information. He just says, the information I've already given you, 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 need, you need to hold fast to. And, and you need to be totally absorbed in, in this. So a summary of this entire section is a man of God pursues a holy life and sound doctrine. You exemplify one and you exposit the other and... Both have a public nature. You're, you're putting your life on display. You're, you're, you're putting the, the voice of God on, uh, on display through, through preaching. But now he calls Timothy not to neglect this calling, the calling to his calling, in particular to this task, in verse 14. And he says, give yourself totally to the practice of these duties. And he does that because most men that, that God uses, like Timothy here, are reluctant leaders. They want Christ lifted up, just not themselves. They, and that makes for a good minister. They don't have to be coached into, into conviction. They, they hold the doctrines of the Bible with a death grip. They've been converted by them. But, but they don't want the limelight. They don't want the glory and they don't want the mantle. One that has set Christ as king over his heart doesn't want to be out front, but, but he's compelled in his heart, uh, if this is his task, that's given by God. And so, so they often have to be prodded toward, toward leadership, which is why God uses them, them greatly, because God will not share his glory with, with another, and God gives grace to the, to the humble. And people who have a humble hesitancy must also be reminded sometimes to shake off the reluctancy and, and, and stand out front and, and run on. And, and that it is indeed God who has called them to, to this role. And you can see it in the Bible. I think Moses is probably the most familiar example when God called him in Exodus 3 and 4. I mean, he told the Lord... After God called him, uh, you know, Pharaoh won't listen to me. Israel won't listen to me. I have no proof that, that I'm your representative and, and I can't even talk well. I'm not eloquent in, in speech. And David, he wasn't even in the house whenever Samuel came to anoint God's king. He was out in the field caring for the sheep because David is a far cry from Saul. You could go on, but even in church history, George Whitfield, when challenged for leadership by John Wesley's ambition, stepped out of the way and went to the, went to the U.S. to preach, and, and God used him to shake a continent for Christ. And here's Timothy having the, the, the same issue. And, and Paul tells Timothy it was the grace of God that called him to this work, and that grace was given at salvation as a spiritual gift. Verse 14, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you. It was given to him at salvation from God, and then he says that that grace was confirmed by apostolic revelation. It's during the apostolic times, but it was also affirmed by the, by the elders of a, of a local church, so the laying on the hands of the eldership. And so we, he must fulfill it faithfully. That's what he says in verse 15. Take pains with these things or practice these things, as the ESV says, which is a really good translation. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to, to all. And, and here's the, the twin imperative uh, that, that turns the command positively. Verse 14, don't neglect the work. Verse 15, devote yourself to it. And notice he says, take pains with these things and be absorbed in them. That's everything in the list. 
These things are the commands that we went over last week in verses 12 and 13. Read the text, explain the text, call people to live out the text. It's, and that being modeled in your life. He says, you're not to neglect that work. You're not to be laissez-faire about it either. You're not to have a questionable commitment to it. It's to be pursued with all of your will and all of your, your vigor. The word take pains or or practice means to attend carefully to something, to, to fix one's mind on it, to, to cultivate something to, uh, into practice, to pick it up and turn it upside down and to where you understand it, you might be able to, to, to perform it. Philip Towner said the emphasis here is on doing, but before you do it, you, you, you fully understand it. If you were using this word related to a, to a sermon, you, you would say, before you preach it, you must fully understand the, the passage and then, and then thoroughly apply it. It's preparation and practicing. And Paul says to do that with these things, the, the things that make a biblical ministry. Take pains, not just to know sound doctrine, but take pains to work it out in life. Take pains, not just to know what God requires in conduct and speech and love and faith and purity, but give yourself to the practice of these things. Take pains not just to know the Bible but meditate and, uh, and be so given to it that you understand how to faithfully practice what it says. I mean, it's one thing to know about something, and yet quite another to lay hold of it with your faculties and to the point that you can use it, and then you do. It's all wrapped up in this, in this word. Paul says, see that all the way through. And I'm afraid that there are many Christians that know a lot about the Bible but practice very little of what they know. Appreciation for the truth is not application of the truth. And when you do that, when you appreciate the truth, or when you, you know a lot about the Bible, but don't put a lot of it into practice, it's, it's what's called a biblical integrity gap. Mark Hager uses that term quite often. When we believe more than we practice. And everybody is there to, to a certain level. I mean, you always believe, you always know more than you're putting into practice. But but you're doing your best to try to close that, close that gap. And Paul says to avoid that, you must be totally absorbed in, in, in the work. And that's the, the second imperative here. Look at verse 15. He says, take pains with these things or practice these things and be absorbed in them so that your progress or your advancement will be, will be evident to all. The, the word absorbed is not in the original. It, it, it literally reads, be in them. And Towner again said it means to live and breathe these instructions and duties. Be in these duties. Like, like this is life. And when you put both of these directions together, this is a call to be totally committed to biblical practice. You engage it with your mind. You practice it in your life. And it lays complete hold of you. If you go to the new members class, you'll hear me say this, but you've probably heard the statement, Change the method, not the message. And Paul says that's not as easy as you might think in this verse because it separates two things that are inextricably linked. What people mean by that is probably well-meaning, but, but it's misguided. They, what they mean is that methodology is flexible, it, it's movable, it's alterable, but theology is fixed and it can't be changed. And the problem with that, according to this passage, is, is it's, it's a fallacy because theology derives methodology. Or, or to say it their way, the message mandates the method. Because what someone does is directly related to what they be, believe. Biblical practice comes from biblical authority. Knowing comes from doing. Interpretation comes before application. Theology comes before methodology. And I could illustrate it in many ways, but, but let me do it in, in these few ways. If you believe in the authority of Scripture, sola scriptura, then, then your church and your life is going to be based on the Bible alone. You're going to go to it to solve your problems, and you're not going to look at, at, at other sources, whether it's psychiatry or whether it's current trends or, or, it, or church history or councils or creeds or, or whatever it might, might be you're going to look at the, the Bible uh, alone. If you believe in verbal plenary inspiration, then you're going to preach expositionally, and you're going to want to sit under expositional preaching because you believe and understand that every 
word of the Bible is God breathed. And therefore your task is just to hear what God said, not some blathering idiot like me giving his opinion. Nothing more, nothing less. Or let me give you a negative one. If you do not believe that man is totally depraved and that his will is not a slave to sin, then you're going to think your job in evangelism is to convince him with a good argument rather than share the, the whole gospel so the Spirit of God can do his work of regeneration. Methodology is, is directly tied to theology. Methodology matters because methodology has theology standing behind it in the shadows. Uh, biblical fidelity comes before biblical practice, and you can't get those two things turned around. You must have the biblical fidelity of Wycliffe and Tyndale, or you have no authority. But believing in what the Bible says is not enough. You must do what the Bible says. And that's where biblical practice comes in. You say, I haven't really thought about that, maybe as deeply as you're trying to make me think about it today, but, but it makes sense, and it sounds kind of serious, and it is. But is it serious enough to die for? You may not have thought about this before, but, but what would you say that you would die for related to, to your faith? Now, I understand by God's grace and the Lord would have to empower you, but, but let's say it came down to that. What, would you say the Bible? Preacher, by God's grace, I would die for the truth that, that the Bible is the word of God. What about the, the deity of Christ? You would say, yes, pastor, if I was put to the test, again, God would have to empower me. If I had to choose death or denying the deity of Jesus, I would die. What about the resurrection? What about the practice of communion? Would you die over the practice of communion? I mean, if someone came in here and added the statement that the real presence of Christ was active when we had the Lord's Supper, would you be willing to die for that rather than accept it? Well, I want to tell you about a man who was first in a long line of Christians who died over the practice of communion. And they did that because they understood the grievous error that was, that was behind the Roman Mass. And the man's name was John Rogers, and he was the, the first of the Marian martyrs. John Rogers and 400 plus others died because they knew that this unbiblical practice was, was tied to an underlying belief that denied the very gospel itself. In the words of the, the Book of Common Prayer, Rogers knew that the doctrine of the Mass was, quote, a blasphemous fable and a dangerous deceit, which is still true today, by the way. You could argue that the first martyr under Mary Tudor was Lady Jane Grey, the nine-day queen. And if you've never read about her, uh, you should. She was an amazing woman, young lady that stood for the faith. But she died over a political move. John Rogers faced the fire for refusing to deny biblical practice. And he's significant because he was first. It was said that he opened the gate to the fire for others to follow, and to do that with joy. Speaking of John Rogers, Steve Lawson said, John Rogers paid a price that John Calvin, Martin Luther, and John Knox never paid. None of those men gave their life for the doctrines of the Reformation, died. But Rogers paid for his belief with his life. And not just any death, he, he was burned at the stake. And it happened during a three-year rampage by the evilest queen ever to sit on England's throne. From 1555 to 1558, that's the hottest part. Bloody Mary, as she was called, only reigned five years. From 1553, she died in 1558. And in that short time, she burned no less than 288 Protestants at the stake for their devotion to the Bible. And over a hundred others died in prison or, or impoverished, waiting for their turn. In 1555, 71 were burnt. In 56, 89. In 1557, 88 Protestants were burned at the stake. And in 1558, 40. And that's not even a complete list. The number varies by, by recorder. And her victims were some of the, the greatest Christians of, of the day. These were not drunkards or, or swindlers. 
John Rogers, February 4th at Smithfield. Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, if you've ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you've read about them in October of that same year outside of Balliol College in, in Oxford. John Philpot that same year. 1556, Thomas Cranmer. 1557, Anne Ashton and Mary Groves burnt on June 22nd. Two of the 54 women who were torched for Christ under Bloody Mary. And Mary continued her rage all the way up until her death in 1558. She died while she was on the throne, but the last week of her life, her, her swan song before she goes off into eternity, five Protestants were burnt at the stake in her very last week. And these people were not just pastors and, and theologians. There were plenty. I, I made uh, a mention uh, of a few of the famous, one, famous ones, but there were only over 200 lay people in that list who were tried, and the question was put to them, do you believe in the five solas of the Reformation? might have been a different way, but that was what they were asking. You believe in salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone. Will you recant? Will you deny the mass is the literal body and, and blood of Christ? And if you deny that, then you'll be burned as a heretic. These were businessmen and, and mothers and farmers. Even children were burnt. And 200 men and women from the church would not capitulate. They would rather die for their faith. And the first to, to go into the fire, the first to open the door was John Rogers. And so everyone's watching what's going to happen with, with him. It's hard to associate the English Reformation with one man like we do with, with Germany, with Luther and... Geneva with, with Calvin. But I think the life of, of John Rogers exemplifies the reformers of England, and also because he's the first martyr at, at a crucial time. John Rogers was a good minister of Jesus Christ, as Paul's laid out here in 1 Timothy 4. He was a reluctant one in the beginning. He didn't even want his name on his translation, partially to protect himself, but also he didn't want to take away from Tyndale's work. So he published the Bible under a pseudonym, Thomas Matthews, the Matthews Bible. And he's unwaveringly committed to biblical practice, as you'll see, with the goal that people could, could see his advancements. He took, he took pains in it. He was totally absorbed in, in providing the, the Word of God to others. And the God of the Word is evident in his life. John Rogers was, was born around 1500, and he, he died in 1555 when, when, when he was burnt. He, he was born in Derridan, England, in, in the parish of Aston near Birmingham. He was educated in Pembroke Hall, Cambridge University. He graduated with a bachelor's there in 1525. And then he became a junior canon at Christ Church at Oxford. He was ordained a, as a priest in the Catholic Church, like like almost all of the reformers were. They, it's because that's all there was uh, until God opened their eyes to, to the truth of the Bible and then they gave their lives to burn the church down. You don't know a lot about his life until about 1532 when he becomes the rector of Holy Trinity in Queen Heith, London. But sometime after that, around 1534, he, he, he gets a request, an offer that changes his life. He gets an offer to become a chaplain to a group of British merchants in Antwerp, Belgium. And he says yes to it. And it, doesn't only, it only, not only changes his life, but, the, but England's, course of England. I mean, these merchants were all businessmen living in the, same, in the same house, and they had a, confer, a commercial venture that was part of it. And they wanted somebody to come and teach them the Bible and, and their workers. And that wasn't abnormal. You, people of great estates or, or, or wealth, people lived there and they were, they were, they were part of the, of the work that they did. They would often hire clergy to come and pastor over their vast manors and, and workers. And so they, they send out a request and Rogers goes and he takes this preaching task. But instead of the work that he thought he was going to be doing, he encounters God's divine providence. There is another man living in this house that Rogers hasn't met. And his name was William Tyndale. And the merchants were Protestants. These were businessmen that, that were helping Tyndale to, 
who was there in hiding, translating the Bible into the English language in, in a back room. Just coincidence that Rogers just happens to go there and Tyndale just happens to be living there, right? And when Rogers meets William Tyndale, he's converted. I mean, he goes there as a Catholic priest in order to, to preach and, and God teaches him the gospel and he becomes a follower of Christ. John Wycliffe was the grandfather of the Reformation in England, but William Tyndale was called his father. And Tyndale was also called the Apostle of England. And he was a man zealous to fulfill what what Wycliffe had started. He, He picked up where he left off, and he loathed the Antichrist in Rome. His most famous line, uh, Tyndale's most famous line, came at at an estate dinner. Uh, Imagine, if you will, this, you know, a a large estate dinner, a lot of people, dignitaries, people there sitting around eating, and there's there's discussion, people addressing folks. It's not like a a family dinner. It's, It's bigger than that. There's a Catholic priest that was actually invited to this dinner as a guest, and the topic of religion comes up. And, and, and the, the priest gets a little exercised, and, and he brashly asserts around the dinner table to everyone, quote, we would be better to be without God's laws than the Pope's. That's what this priest says. And this, is in, this enrages Tyndale. And he responds to the priest and everybody there, I defy the Pope and all his laws. And if God spares my life, I will cause the boy that drives the plow in England to know more of the Scriptures than the Pope himself. And that became his life goal. And William Tyndale fulfilled that task and gave us our first English Bible from the original languages. Wycliffe translated it from the Vulgate, and Tyndale was the first to translate it from Greek and Hebrew. He did such a good job that when they translated the King James in 1611, large portions of it, large portions of the uh, the King James are are copied verbatim from Tyndale's work. 85% of the King James, to be exact. Steve Lawson said, Whatever English Bible you have in your lap today, regardless of the translation, you have it because of William Tyndale. And Tyndale did it in a back room with a couple of assistants. The King James Version had a whole translation committee and the resources of the crown to do it. And one of those assistants was John Rogers. And Rogers, converted now, sees what Tyndale is doing, and he takes it upon himself to join the work. And so now Rogers becomes like a secretary or an assistant to Tyndale in his translation work, uh, like a graduate or research assistant, like a paralegal only with Scripture. But something else happens that alters Roger's life. William Tyndale had been there 12 years being underground translating the the Bible, and he's betrayed and arrested. A man whose name shall rot like his deeds, Harry Phillips, betrays Tyndale to regain his father's estate, which he squandered gambling. The Catholic Church or someone higher up... uh, that was favorable to Catholicism, promises Harry Phillips to restore all of his money if he finds Tyndale, and he does. Harry Phillips is the Judas of the English Reformation. He befriends Tyndale and lures him into a trap, and he he conspires and then leads Tyndale out of the house, and he's even there and points him out whenever he's arrested. Tyndale was held for a year and a half and then martyred. He was strangled and then burned and then blew up with gunpowder. Here are the crimes, the official crimes of William Tyndale for why he, was, why he was killed. Here they are. First, he maintains that faith alone justifies. That was his first crime. Second, he maintains to believe in the forgiveness of sins and to embrace the mercy offered in the gospel is enough for salvation. That was his second crime. Third, he aversed that human traditions cannot bind the conscience except where they... they ne- Their neglect might occasion scandal. Fourth, he denies the freedom of the will. Fifth, he denies there is purgatory. Sixth, he affirms that neither the virgin nor the saints pray for us in their own person. And seventh, he asserts that neither the virgin, that's Virgin Mary, nor the saints should be invoked by us. Those were the crimes that William Tyndale was put to death for. And somehow, we don't know, Rogers hears about Tyndale's arrest... 
And he gathers up his works before the men can get there. And he flees with them. And now he takes up Tyndale's manor, uh, mantle. Rogers is thoroughly convinced uh, for the need of the Bible, the Bible be, to be in people's hands. And Tyndale's New Testament was published in 1526, but his Old Testament was incomplete. And up to this point, Tyndale had translated all of the New Testament and the Pentateuch and much of the Old Testament, but there's still Ezra through Malachi, and his translation still needs some work. Part of the Old Testament does. There's another man who was influenced by, by William Tyndale named Miles Coverdale, who wrote the Coverdale Bible. He was not the scholar that, that Tyndale or Rogers was, but that he produces the, the Coverdale Bible, and it needs work. It was based on Tyndale's work, and it was translated from Latin, so it's deficient. So John Rogers takes the Coverdale Bible, works it over, and he, he's a Greek and Hebrew scholar, so he translates like, like Tyndale, and he edits Tyndale's work and corrects it, and particularly the part that Tyndale didn't finish from Ezra through Malachi. And, and he also works over the complete translation. And Rogers is, is making a, a translation that was good even better. And so what Tyndale started, Coverdale completed, and Rogers improves. But, but Rogers even goes beyond that. He, he, he also makes margin notes in the, in the English Bible and creates probably one of the first study Bibles. He translated some notes from French scholars and other reformers, and, and he puts them in there too. And He also puts key articles uh, in, ahead of each book of the Bible and, and key doctrines. He makes over 2,000 of these notes in, in the Bible. One historian said the Catholic Church feared Roger's notes even more than the English translation because these notes and articles clearly explained the doctrines of the Reformation and the biblical gospel. It was like preaching on page. And each page of the Bible had a summary of what was taught on the page. I mean, this is just unheard of at this time. I mean, you pick up a Bible, and if you couldn't even get a Bible then, if you did, it was in, it was in Latin, and you've never, you've never had the, uh, the, the opportunity to sit under the doctrines and understand what it teaches. And, and here, uh, Rogers is putting this in the hands of the, of, the, of the average person, fulfilling Tyndale's desire that the plowman, the average Joe, would be able to read the Bible, understand it, and put it into practice in his life. He even adds cross-references in the margin so people can compare Scripture to Scripture. And he adds a history of the world from creation to the modern day, which was 1537, creating what is likely the first commentary on the English Bible. And with these margin notes and introduction, the Bible is now over a thousand pages. And at some point, he leaves Antwerp and, and he even goes to Wittenberg. He studies under Luther. He meets Melanchthon there. He goes on to the northern part of Germany where he becomes a German pastor. There he meets his wife who will bear him 11 children. The final one, the 11th one, he, he doesn't get to meet except on his way to, to execution. Still on his, his wife's breast as he goes to be burned. He does all of this, translation work, under a pseudonym, Thomas Matthews, which is, again, how we got the Matthews Bible, printed in Paris and Antwerp by his wife's uncle. And he dedicates it to the King of England, who is Henry VIII. And Thomas Cranmer, the, the Archbishop of Canterbury, or at least he becomes, holds a, gets a hold of this Bible, and he declares it the best of all English translations to date, and... He secures a license from, from Henry in 1537 to produce it in England. But Henry VIII, if you know anything about him, has, has got some, some issues. Six of them, to be exact. Speaking of the English Reformation, Stephen Nichols said Germany had Luther, Switzerland had Zwingli and Calvin, and, and England had a, had a king. And it was Henry's issues that both assisted the Reformation and also produced the greatest threat that came against it. Henry had six wives and many children, but there was one in particular that, that hated God and the Reformation, and it was his first daughter, Mary Tudor. She was born in 1516 by Henry's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and, or Aragon, 
And they had six children. Only Mary survives, so she's an only child. And she lived out a pretty quiet life as a royal princess until about 1527, whenever Henry seeks an annulment of a marriage, of the marriage with, with her mother. Henry desires, besides his lust, a male heir, and since Catherine, in his mind, hadn't produced one, even though it was his fault, he sought an annulment. And there was a problem, however. Catherine was the, the daughter of a, of a Catholic king, and he pressures the Pope to say no to the annulment, and since the Pope refused to grant it, in 1533, Henry appoints Thomas Cranmer the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he dissolved the marriage, allowing Henry to marry Anne Boleyn. And so in 1534, Henry and Parliament declared the act of supremacy, and England broke away from the Roman Catholic Church. And Anne Boleyn soon gave birth to Mary's half-sister Elizabeth. And after Catherine's death, then Henry in turn executes Anne Boleyn on trumped-up charges of adultery and conspiracy for failing to produce a, a male heir. And his next wife, Jane Seymour, finally gives birth to, to his long-desired heir, Edward VI. And so at this point, Mary and Elizabeth were treated as outcasts. In 1547, Henry VIII dies and Edward VI takes the throne and he ascends the throne as a nine-year-old boy. And so he has guardians. And in God's providence, those guardians are all Protestants. And they teach him well, very well. And so Edward reverses all of the vestiges of Catholic favor in the laws of his father. And the Reformation officially arrives in England, or at least as far as the crown is concerned. And because of this, John Rogers comes home to help, to help the Reformation flourish. He's known by Thomas Cranmer by this point. Everybody knows he is Thomas Matthews. And he's given the responsibility to, to preach and becomes the vicar of St. Margaret's Church in London. And he also becomes a preacher at St. Sepulchre. In 1551, he is appointed by the by the Bishop of London, Nicholas Ridley, to be one of his personal chaplains. And so that kind of places Roger on the, the inner circle. And he's preaching in St. Paul's Cathedral in, in London, and there he preaches the Bible. He denounces the greed of, of the clergy and preached against the Pope and his foul doctrines. He even, he even declined to wear the prescribed vestments, the, the robes and such. He, he only wore a, a simple round cap. Sadly, King Edward only lived six to seven years as king. He died at age 15, likely from tuberculosis after contracting the, the measles. And then turmoil ensued for the, the throne. and That included an attempt by the Protestants to uh, Protestant nobles to put up Lady Jane Grey, the, the nine-day queen on the, on the throne. Here's the famous picture by Paul Delaroche who... who illustrates her execution. She's not fully aware of, of all that, that she's being thrust in the midst of, but she knows what she believes and dies for those beliefs. Mary has a lot of support because nobody wants a civil war, and now she ascends to the throne, and it's her chance to pay back those that she saw responsible for her mother's humiliation, the Reformers. And so with great hatred for the Protestants because of the annulment of her mother's marriage to Harry or to Henry, Mary immediately begins to work bringing back the Roman Catholic faith to, to, to England. She, she starts slow, not to disturb too many people too quickly, and then she builds steam. She initially rescinds the, the religious proclamations of Edward replacing them with old English laws, enforcing heresy against the church, but, but doesn't call anybody on the carpet immediately. Then she removes Protestant scholars from the universities, and Protestant pastors were ousted and arrested, and then they stood trial. And Then she placed England back under papal authority. At Westminster Abbey, the Mass was celebrated for the first time in 20 years. And all this is going on, Rogers is, is preaching, he's unfazed. On the ascension to, uh, of Mary to the throne, he preached at Paul's cross, commending, quote, the true doctrine taught in King Edward's days, end quote. 
and warning his hearers against, quote, pestilent popery, idolatry, and superstition. But it was her carrying out her last action that earned her the nickname Bloody Mary, where she burned almost 300 Protestants at the stake for, for heresy. And it was here that John Rogers faced her and was victorious as the first one. The Tower of, of London, which you can still visit today, called the Bloody Tower, is where many of them were, were held and, and condemned. Um, Cranmer and Ridley and Latimer were condemned for death in 1555. They were imprisoned in the tower before being burned at, at Oxford. And these ex executions were, were carried out in public places. They want as many people as possible to see, many witnesses to see. This is what will happen if you defy the, the Catholic Church. It intended to strike fear, except it did the opposite. They would actually march the people... They would burn the people close to the, the, the preachers in, in, in specific. They would burn them close to their, their churches. So, so all of the congregants would be able to, to come and see. And according to John Fox's account, which was published in 1563, within the decade following the Marian martyrs, in, in, instead of discouraging the Reformation, it helped light the fire of the Reformed faith. So Rogers, though, after 10 days of preaching a sermon against the, the papacy after Mary took over, he's summoned before a council and, and bidden to, to keep within his house. He's put under house arrest. His position was taken away. His church pulpit was filled with a papist. Here's what one of the historians wrote about him. While he was in prison, he, he awaited and met death cheerfully though he was denied a meeting with his wife. And during the 18 months, he was in prison for a year and a half, Rogers was held prisoner. He was always cheerful and intent on pu pushing forward everything he undertook. And then he was tried as a heretic. And when he refused to accept the Mass and the, the real presence of Christ at the Mass, he was condemned. And he was burned at the stake on February 4, 1555 at Smithfield. This is a rendering of Smithfield. And the account of his death is recorded by John Fox, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Here's what Fox says. When the time came that he should be brought out of Newgate to Smithfield, to the place of his execution, Mr. Woodruff, one of the sheriffs, first came to Rogers and asked him if he would revoke his abominable doctrine and the evil opinion of the sacrament of the altar. And Rogers answered, That which I have preached I seal with my blood. Then Mr. Woodruff said, Thou art a heretic. And Rogers responded, That shall be known at the day of judgment. Well, said Mr. Woodruff, I will never pray for thee, but I will pray for you, said Mr. Rogers. And so he was brought the same day towards Smithfield, saying Psalm 51. He quoted Psalm 51 all the way. And all the people wonderfully rejoicing at his constancy. He doesn't go whimpering or, or crying. A little before his burning, a pardon was brought. If he would have recanted, he would have, he would have been set free, but he utterly refused it. His wife and his children, being 11 in number, 10 able to go, and one at her breast met him by the way, as he went towards Smithfield. This sorrowful sight of his own flesh could nothing move him, but that he constantly and cheerfully took his death with wonderful patience in defense and quarrel of the gospel of Christ, end quote. Noaya, the French ambassador, it was Catholic, who was there to witness this, this day, the first martyr, said the support that was given uh, to Rogers was given by, by almost all the people. And this is what this Catholic and French ambassador said. Even his children assisted him in it, comforting him in such a manner that he walked as if it seemed he was being led to his wedding. And here's Rogers in the fire. And he died over communion. John Rogers and almost 300 others died because they denied the practice of the Mass. 
because at its most fundamental level, it is blasphemous. It declares the death of Jesus Christ was not enough. That His death on the cross was needed, but it was incomplete. It's incomplete for you. And so now, as He's ascended into heaven, He's at the right hand of the Father, a priest must perform Mass to sacrifice Him afresh on the Roman altar. That's what happens in the Mass. And Catholic dogma teaches that when a priest pronounces the hocus-pocus, which is literally what it's called, it's not a, not a slander, but that's what it's called, when he pronounces that the bread supernaturally becomes the literal body of Christ, and that the literal blood of Christ flows from His side in heaven. And you, you have Jesus under that system in multiple places at once physically, which denies Christ's human nature and His bodily resurrection. And so when someone partakes of the Mass, they're literally eating the flesh of Jesus and literally drinking His blood. And that's what Catholic dogma teaches about the Mass. That's why the elements become the literal body and blood of Christ. His literal presence is at each Mass because it's a real sacrifice. It's not a symbol or a worship service about the sacrifice that happened on the cross. This is a sacrifice happening right now if you go to a Catholic Mass. And get this, those additional sacrifices practiced by the priests are necessary for you to get into heaven. Those sacrifices grant you increments of grace that when they're added up, if you participate in them, they're enough to get you into purgatory or purgatory to purge off your sins so you can get into heaven. And that is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. It's the antithesis of the sacrifice of Christ once for all on the cross. It's blasphemous. It's heretical. It's damnable. And if you believe that, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And that's what was at stake. And these people knew that. And that's why they were willing to die for practice, because they understood theology was hiding behind the practice and the elements, and it was bad theology. J.C. Ryle said it best. Grant for a moment that the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice. Grant that every time the words of consecration are used, the natural body and blood of Christ are present on the communion table under the forms of bread and wine. Grant that everyone who eats that consecrated bread and drinks that consecrated wine does really eat and drink the natural body and blood of Christ. Grant for a moment these things and then see what monumentous consequences result from these premises. Number one, you spoil the blessed doctrine of Christ's finished work when He died on the cross. A sacrifice that needs to be repeated is not perfect or a complete thing. Number two, you spoil the priestly offer of Christ. If, if these are priests, these priests are, that can offer an acceptable sacrifice to God besides the Lord, then a great high priest is robbed of His glory. You spoil the scriptural doctrine of Christian ministry. You exalt sinful men into a position of mediators between God and man. Number four, you, you give the sacramental elements of bread and wine uh, honor and veneration that they were never meant to receive and produce idolatry, which is supposed to be abhorred by faithful Christians. And last, but, but not least, number five, you overthrow the, the doctrine of Christ's human nature. If the body born of the Virgin Mary can be in more places than, than one at the same time, it's not a body like ours. And so Jesus then was not the, the last Adam and in truth of our nature. J.C. Ryle, speaking of these martyrs like John Rogers, said this, how important they were. Whenever the English language is spoken... On the face of the globe, this fact ought to be clearly understood by every Englishman who reads history. Rather than admit the doctrine of real presence of Christ, natural body and blood under the forms of bread and wine, the reformers of the Church of England were content to be burned. And today, there hangs a plaque in England at the very place where Rogers gave his life. 
And I learned this last week that, interestingly, the, the plaque hangs on the, the outside of St. Bartholomew's Hospital, which just happens to be where Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones practiced medicine before his ministry. And all of that brings us back where we started. What would you die for? I hope you would say, by God's grace, I would die for communion, at least it described in this way. I would even die for methodology that has theology behind it, if that methodology denies the truths of Scripture. If you're able to do that, or willing to do that, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And the things that you're facing today and I'm facing today, one of the reasons that we even put together the why we're not woke is, is just, nobody's going to attack you and say, deny the Bible or deny Jesus Christ. The seductive error is going to come in through methodology. It's, it's going to creep in some other way. And you have to have enough discernment to, to, to pull that apart and to understand what's behind it and then be able to stand there. You have to close the integrity gap. Not only appreciate the truth, but, but apply it. And if you do, you'll, you'll find your hope is, is a firm ground, firm ground of, scriptures, of the Scriptures. And if you'll do that, you'll have to take pains with these things, practice these things. You have to be absorbed in them. It won't just be a passing glance. And if you do, your, your advancement, your progress will be evident before all. And I trust, by God's grace, you will. You are a church that loves Scripture. And I am very thankful for you. And I pray that you or I or none of the elders here would ever capitulate, even if it's under deception. You should pray for that very thing. Let's do that now. Father, I thank you for lives well lived, imperfect, frail vessels, all the amount of grace that you had to infuse in a man like John Rogers to be able to stand at that place, but with that grace that he needed in, that, in that, that most needy hour came over years of practicing, of knowing his authority and being absorbed in, in these truths. It's not the microwave kind of, of strength. When the knife comes to the throat, you'll know what to do. It's, as we said last week, like lacquer, layer upon layer. Lord, help us to be men and women like that. Um, we probably will never have to give our lives, but we will surely be put to the test of where we will stand. Help us to be merciful and compassionate and, and not argumentative or, or ugly. Help us to deal kindly with people, but plant our feet resolutely in the pages of Scripture where we would never deny it. And I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.